0: fathers we approach your word this morning we need you we we want to hear your voice we're grateful that you've given us your word that you still speak to us through it and we ask that you would show up in a powerful way that we would experience your presence as we've enjoyed you in worship now we turn to sit at your feet lord jesus and to hear from you Break through whatever walls we put up between us and you. Allow us to hear your voice. Allow us to hear it with clarity, with conviction and gentleness. We give our lives to you. In your name. Amen. Amen. All right, sometimes what we think we need is very different from what we need most. Are you with me on that? Sometimes what we think we need and what we need most actually are kind of competing with each other. And when it comes right down to it, we kind of get mixed up as to which is which. Dad, I need a new iPhone. Arguable. The success you have works fine. And college is coming. Which do you need most? Is the question that seems to start showing up in our house more and more. That wasn't about us. <laughs> Think about it also, though, from, from, I don't know, a more revealing perspective. Many of you know I'm, I'm working on a, a PhD, or at least pretending to, based on the collaborative preaching model that we have here. And I am overwhelmed, short-tempered, anxious, and stressed about this whole thing. And Dan continues to nod his head emphatically because he knows my pain. And so I've tried to withdraw from this program like three separate times. Because I figured if I withdraw from the program, I won't be overwhelmed, short-tempered, anxious, or stressed. But it turns out, what if I'm overwhelmed, short-tempered, anxious, and stressed anyways? What if the issue is not the Ph.D. program? I mean, if I finish the Ph.D., what will I be? Well, I'll be overwhelmed, short-tempered, anxious, and stressed, but I'll have a Ph.D. (laughs) What if I get out of the program? I'll be overwhelmed, short-tempered, and anxious, and stressed without a Ph.D. turns out, having another degree doesn't make any difference because my heart needs surgery. My character needs to be transformed. What I thought I needed. Get me out of this program, Lord. Turns out it's not even the issue. What I actually need is for Jesus to transform my heart. See what I mean? What we think we need and what we need most are two different things. And we get so confused with them. Maybe it's you at work and you're saying, oh, if only I could just get a different job or a better job, or I could get that promotion because I go to work and I'm stressed, and I'm bitter, and I don't like the way I'm treated, and I'm a pessimist, and I have no hope. Maybe a new job would fix that. Or, might I suggest to you that whatever job you have, you might be stressed, anxious, hopeless, and a pessimist if those things have taken root in your heart. And maybe what you don't need is a new job, what you need is a new heart. It gets even more intense... Um, I was thinking about it this week, saying, what if you're single and you say, what I need more than anything else is to find a spouse? Maybe I will finally be satisfied. But if if you look at Scripture, singleness is honored in Scripture. It is celebrated in Scripture. In fact, Paul even says it's better. And we in the church forget that. And here's a proposition for you, but what if the sense of dissatisfaction you have in singleness isn't magically made better by suddenly being married? What if what you think you need and what you need most is to be satisfied in Christ? Or what if you're married and you're thinking, if only we had kids. Oh, if only we had kids, that might help with the dissatisfaction in our marriage or it might magically make everything better. It doesn't. It's just now you have kids. To, it, it actually amplifies whatever issues you have and now there's noise and chaos all around you all the time. Maybe maybe the issue is not whether or not you have kids. Maybe there's an issue of satisfaction that you need Jesus to meet in your life. Or maybe you're in marriage wishing you weren't married. Maybe marriage is hard. And you're saying everything would be fixed if I could just like not be married anymore. Maybe that dissatisfaction. What you think you need is not actually what you need most. Maybe what we need most is heart surgery where for Jesus to meet us in the deepest places of who we are to tell us what you actually need is me, says the Lord Jesus. Because we get so confused with what we think we need and what we actually need most. And this is where we need Jesus to help us sort it out. And this fall... This fall, my friends, we are going to have a giant come to Jesus moment. We are going to spend the next nine weeks together coming to Jesus. We've been studying the book of 1 Thessalonians. We've been studying the book of Ezra. If you've been with us for like the last 15 years, we've slowly worked our way through the Old Testament narrative books, you know, from Genesis all the way through to Ezra. I just want to talk about Jesus. Like, just get me in the Gospels and let's talk about Jesus. But here's the thing, it's dangerous to do that. Because Jesus has this sneaky way of parsing out what we think we need from what we actually need most. And it can be decidedly uncomfortable to come to Jesus. Jesus has this devastating way of taking the confusion that we often face and we say, Lord Jesus, here's what I need. Now, it is not wrong to go to Jesus and say, here's what I need. He says, cast all your anxieties upon Him. He says, let your requests be made known to God. He says, a tender reed He will not snuff out or break. So He wants us to go to Him and say, Lord, here's what I need. But at the same time, do we have a posture that says, while I'm saying this is what I need, am I open to You, Lord, saying, but this is what You need more. This is what You need most. What we need Jesus to do is help us figure out what we think we need from what we need most, and help us maybe even to let go of what we think we need. And to listen to his voice alone to tell us what we need most. And the text we're looking at this morning is a spectacular example of that. It's a spectacular example because what we think we need, well, it's not always what Jesus is offering. And I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. If you're using a Black Pew Bible, page 813. And this morning, we are going to come to Jesus. And we're going to keep coming to Him this fall, again and again and again. And I propose to you that we might find Jesus knows us better than we know ourselves. And He actually offers something that nothing else in this world can provide. He offers himself. In our text today, we're going to see this exact phenomenon. Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Follow along with me as I read. This is a good one. (laughs) A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come. And they gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Now some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. And since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it, and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Take your mat and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And so he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And he got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone. And they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this. This is the Word of the Lord. Oh, and it's a good one. It's a good Word of the Lord. And I am proposing to you that what we immediately gravitate to in this passage is not the most important part. I mean, what what does everybody gravitate to this passage? Jesus heals the guy. This is amazing. This is what the crowds have been after. This is actually what Jesus is known for. This is the obvious, amazingest part of the text. Jesus heals the guy. This is actually what Mark has even been setting up for us in the Gospel of Mark. We're only in chapter 2, so we're just getting this Gospel underway here. Mark starts with you know, John the Baptist and then Jesus getting baptized, inaugurating his ministry. And Jesus calls some disciples and then his supernatural ministry kicks into gear. Right? It, it, he starts driving out demons. He starts healing the sick. He heals Peter's mom. It's fantastic. He heals a man with leprosy and says, now don't tell anyone. What does the guy do? He goes and tells everyone. And because of that, Jesus can't move around from town to town anymore because the crowds all know what He's doing. Jesus heals people. Jesus drives out demons. Jesus is this incredible show. You don't want to miss it. And so by the time chapter 2 rolls around, it says a few days later when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that He'd come home because everybody was talking. All the guy with leprosy's fault. Or the man formerly known as the guy with leprosy. All his fault. And they gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left. Not even outside the door. They filled the streets trying to get to see Jesus. What were they all here for? What did the crowd want? It's interesting. In the Gospel of Mark, the crowd is almost like a character. It's treated like a character in the Gospel of Mark, and it's not really favorably presented. Crowds are usually in the way in the Gospel of Mark. Like here, they're they're preventing people from getting to Jesus. They're fickle. They flip-flop back and forth. They're obstinate. They're shallow. They're looking for the Messiah to come. But what does the crowd want? want? They want Jesus to perform for them. They want the show. Over and over again, the crowds come because they want to see this Jesus and they want to see what He's doing. And the, Did you hear He fed 5,000 people? Did, maybe He'll feed us too. Maybe, maybe, did you hear He drove out a demon? Did you hear He healed that person? What about that guy with leprosy? Doesn't have leprosy anymore. Let's go find... The crowds want the show. They want Jesus to perform. And over and over again in the Gospel of Mark, this is how the crowds are presented. They're not presented as earnest Jesus-seekers. They're looking for Jesus to perform. The text also says, though, that there were some scribes, some some teachers of the law that were there. The official gatekeepers of the Jewish people's relationship with God. I mean, they study the law so the whole community can be right before God. And they've heard some crazy things about Jesus, too. Right? I mean, Jesus casting out demons. What's that about? Healing the sick. We'd better go and make sure that this Jesus is doing things the right way. We'd better go to make sure He's teaching the right things. We'd better make sure this Jesus is directing people properly through the whole temple system in order to mediate their relationship with God. The crowds, they wanted to see Jesus perform. The scribes wanted to see Jesus conform. And then it happens. The moment no one was waiting for. Some men come, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. And since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they make an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it, and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. Full stop. What? Can you imagine how awesome that would have been? Everyone's gathered. Jesus is teaching. Now, you know, these homes, they were basically rectangular sets of walls. And then there would be big beams that would go across in one direction. And then in the opposite direction, slightly smaller poles would be set across. And then maybe some sticks would be set across in this direction, followed by thatch and then mud that would be baked on by the sun to try and prevent water from getting in. The the text literally says they unroofed the roof. If you think of the process of building a roof like that, now think of unbuilding it. This is not a tidy proposition. So imagine Jesus is sitting there teaching, you know, blessed are the poor. I don't know what he's saying. He's saying something really important. And all of a sudden, some mud starts crumbling and falling down beside him. And I can picture him saying, and another thing Jesus says. Do you think he stopped? Do you think he stopped teaching? Do you think he was like, oh, let's see how this plays out. <laughs> Do you think he tried to keep going for a little while? Ignore the man behind the curtain. You know, just like, let's keep trying to communicate. But the, and, and pretty soon, like one of the sticks falls and maybe hits somebody who's crowding around Jesus. And now people are sort of like, what is going on? They're stepping out of the way. And this guy, they're, they're, a hole is opening. The poles are being pushed aside. There's mud and debris and thatch and sticks falling. And then they lower a guy through the roof. What a moment. What a moment. And it's the perfect setup for both the teachers of the law and the crowds. Right? Here's the chance for Jesus to perform. Here it comes, people. The paralyzed man! He's right there! He's about to do it! This is the moment they've been waiting for. And the, the, the scribes, the teachers of the law, are like, and here it comes. Here's what we see, what this Jesus does and how He handles it and how He's going to conform to the law of Moses. Let's make sure it all works together. This is the big moment. And you've got to picture that buildup because it probably took a long time for that moment to present itself while they waited for the hole to be dug. So what do you think? Five minutes went by while everyone just sat there waiting? And then... The moment, the paralyzed man in front of Jesus. And Jesus saw their faith and says to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Wait, what? That, that's not what we're looking for here. Um, you do know he's paralyzed, right Jesus? Like the reason they're lowering him through the roof is because he can't walk to get to you. What we're looking for is a healing, say the crowds, in their minds, hearts, and maybe even with their mouths. What, what are you doing forgiving? Who cares about his sin? We want to see you heal the man. We want him to walk again. Like What do you, what do you mean? This is, we've seen you cast out demons. You've been healing people all over the place. Man, you healed Peter's mom. What are you doing forgiving this guy's sins? We're expecting you, Jesus. Point to the stands, call the homer, and knock it out of the park. Did you just bunt... But in doing this, Jesus is not bunting. Jesus is actually taking this whole complicated what we think we need versus what we need most, and He's doing something incredible. He's separating them out and focusing the attention of everybody present on that which matters most. What does Jesus provide? He provides forgiveness for sins. What is he doing? What this is not the script. Well actually, he's doing two very clear and very specific things that we need to pay attention to. The first is this. In forgiving sins, one of the things Jesus is doing is He is revealing His true identity to everybody who is gathered. And by that, He's revealing that He is God. And we see this right from the verses that follow, right? He tells the guy, your sins are forgiven. And by verse 6, the teachers of the law who are sitting there thinking to themselves, whoa, 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 whoa. Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone. And they're not wrong. Who can forgive sins but God alone? That becomes the defining question for Jesus' declaration of His identity. For thousands of years, it has been well established. The only One who forgives sins is God. Back in Exodus... The Lord and Moses were interacting and the Lord passes in front of Moses declaring His own name, the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness. Wrapped up in His, his identity as God is the concept of forgiveness. Or you go to a place like Psalm 103, and the echoes of Exodus are there, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love, but then this beautiful line, He will not always accuse, nor will He harbor His anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His love for those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as He removed our transgressions from us. This is the character of God he removes transgression. He forgives sins. Or maybe go to the prophet Isaiah. As the Lord is speaking to Isaiah, He says, I, even I, am He who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins. Or the prophet Micah. Who is a God like you who pardons sins and forgives the transgression? I love that verse 19. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. It has been clearly established, God is the one who forgives. And here Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. We need to be clear what Jesus is doing there. He is claiming that He is God. God. And that causes problems. Because they say, who does this guy think he is? He's blaspheming. He's claiming to be God. They, they completely understand exactly what he's saying. And that's why they get so hot and bothered about it. And Jesus immediately knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking. And so that's, he, the text continues to say, why are you thinking these things? Jesus asks them. Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man? Your sins are forgiven or get up, take your mat and walk. He says, But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he says to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. And the man gets up, takes up his mat and walks out in full view of them all. And it is so easy for us to get sort of hooked on the miracle. I think there's a little bit of crowd in all of us that says, yeah, he healed the guy. Awesome. But where's the part of us that's like, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. But he didn't heal the guy first. First was this issue of forgiveness of sins. First was this proclamation of identity. And interestingly, I'm not convinced that the paralyzed man nor his friends are even the main characters in the story. They're not recorded that they actually say anything. Jesus addresses them with one line, and the rest of the time He's actually talking to the teachers of the law and the scribes that are gathered there, and and by extension, the crowds that have gathered around Him. I actually think the crowds and these teachers of the law might be the main characters of this story. And this confrontation, and here we actually have a purpose statement, right? Right? Jesus saying to them, I want you to know. He's speaking to those scribes, those teachers of the law, but everyone there is listening. I want you all to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Jesus is revealing His identity. He's saying He is God. And then, if we've established that much, we move on to the second thing that Jesus is doing. He doesn't just reveal His identity, but then He goes and declares what His priority is. He declares what He shows us. He presents to us through this account and through the way that He interacts with these people. He says, let me tell you what my priorities are in terms of my entire life, ministry, and mission. And it comes right down to that first statement when everyone thought He bunted. Right? The men come. They lower the paralytic through the roof. Jesus sees their faith and He says to the man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Don't miss this. Because here's where we find what the main point of what's happening in this story is. I'll bet the man thought his primary issue was that he was paralyzed. It's kind of a glaring issue in one's life. You tend to notice these things. I'll bet the crowds assumed that that was the issue in the man's life. I'll bet even the scribes and the teachers of the law thought that was the main issue in the man's life. But Jesus says, let me show you what's actually most important of all. And let's be clear on that language. He's not saying this other thing isn't important. He's saying, let me show you what's even more important than your physical healing. Your sins are forgiven. Jesus leads with forgiveness. And in so doing, Jesus is saying, let me tell you what my priority is and the reason I came to earth and the reason I am teaching and doing miracles and and casting out demons and healing Peter's mom and all of it. Let me tell you why everything is happening. It's because I want you to have a renewed life with God. Right? It's... We've got to be careful about the way we think about sin. Sometimes we think about sin in a really abstract kind of legalistic way where there's this giant rule book somewhere. Oh, all oh, right, the Bible. And, you know, it's just para, it's like a legal text. So here's the list of all the things you shouldn't do. Oh, by the way, here's also a second list of all the things you should do. Make sure you follow that and everything will be okay. Uh-oh, you sinned. That was paragraph 3, subsection 2A. A, like it's this abstracted thing. Sin is primarily a relational reality. You hurt someone. You you violate the trust of someone. You choose to not associate with someone. You hurt someone's feelings. When we sin, it's not about breaking a legal code. It's about breaking God's heart. And what we don't need is someone to say, well, you know, in order to fix the legal code, what you need is someone to say, I forgive you. What we need is for God to say, I forgive you. Welcome home. What we need is the bare hug of God to say, it's okay, I know. And I forgive you anyways. Because forgiveness is not about clearing the tally of our sin. Forgiveness is about a God who says, I still love you and I want you to be mine. And in this, Jesus declares His priority. Say what's most important of all is that we restore this man's life with God. He forgives his sin and welcomes him back into the arms of the Father. And then He heals him. Which is fantastic. And we like that part of the story too. And the healing is not an afterthought, right? He doesn't just use the man as an object lesson to teach the scribes. He genuinely has compassion. Look through all the gospels death and sickness and disease and infirmity, they're all violations on the created world that Jesus has made. And Jesus and the miracles he performs is literally the inbreaking of the kingdom of God, saying, the way it was meant to be is the way it will be again. And one day when Jesus comes back, he makes all things new, and there will be no more sickness or sorrow or crying or pain, right? The old order of things will pass away. The kingdom of God will come in power. And so when you look at Jesus' life and ministry and you see these things he's doing, they're not just random. It's the in breaking of the kingdom of God. And it's also Jesus demonstrating who he is and teaching us what his priorities are. I love that he heals this guy. And it makes for a killer ending to the story. But there's this... I wonder... I wonder about all the people who didn't get into the house who wanted to be healed that day. The crowds were in the way. One guy and his buddies chose to go through the roof. But what about the 26 other people who were outside and never got into Jesus? What about the guy who lived the next town over, who heard Jesus had come home, and he, got, he I mean, did everything he could to get there, but actually he missed Jesus. Jesus had already moved on to the next town or to that solitary place where he went off to pray, and he didn't get there in time. Like, the Bible always tells us about the highlight reels, <laughs> but for every highlight reel, there's also people who didn't get healed, and there's people who didn't quite get there in time to see Jesus. Like, I think this is a really important part of the story to recognize when we're talking about Jesus' priorities. Life with God. Restoring our lives with God. That we can be in a relationship with the God who created us and loves us and wants us to know Him for His glory. That that is His priority. And sometimes He heals. And sometimes He doesn't. And sometimes He resolves whatever situation you're facing and sometimes He doesn't. And we believe in a God who does the supernatural. We believe in a God who can heal miraculously. We believe in a God who can get you that job or who can fix that problem or who can heal your infirmities. And we also recognize that there are times when God chooses not to. And we don't understand why He wouldn't But sometimes He doesn't. And as the people of God, we are forced to wrestle with Him on that. And I'm not here pretending to explain why He doesn't. As much as I am trying to show you that either Jesus heals you or He doesn't, but in either case, there's something of even greater priority which sounds really insensitive. So please hear me with as much sensitivity as you can project onto me as I'm speaking. Certainly, no one wants to hear this when they're in the midst of suffering. So this is part of equipping a church for when suffering comes. Your life with God matters more than your current circumstances. And that's something Jesus is teaching even in this text. It, it, I mean, I think about it almost in terms of, of, of the as I'm pursuing my degree, saying whether I get it or not, my heart needs to be changed. Jesus can heal your sickness and you can still be a lost, broken, alienated person. Then what good do your legs do you? you see, there is a clear priority in the way Jesus moves, acts, and teaches. And it is first and foremost that His priority is to reconcile us to God by forgiving sins. It's why He came. That's the whole idea of the cross is that when we were dead and broken in our sins, Jesus took our sins upon Himself. He died on the cross and our place was buried. He rose again, conquering death, putting our sin as far away from us as the east is from the west and all of those beautiful Old Testament pictures of a God who forgives. And He rose again that we might have new life with God. It's not about what we're being saved from. It's what we're saved for. And we're saved for a renewed and restored life with God that we get to experience, which means whether He heals us or not, we get Him. Whether He fixes our job situation or not, we get Him. Whether He heals our marriages, we get Him. Whether He fixes our issues with our family, we get Him. Whether He fixes anything in our lives, whether He heals our bodies, we get Him. And when we've got that as our priority, we either get the healing we're seeking or we get the strength to endure whatever it is that God gives because we've got Him. And I think this is what he was offering that paralyzed man. He knew what was going on in this man's life. We don't. But then he's doing all this stuff in front of the crowds. So he's teaching the crowds, hear what the most important thing is. He's not even saying the other things are less important. He's not saying they're not important. He's just showing them what the most important thing is. And then something that struck me also this week, he's even saying it for those teachers of the law who really get a bad reputation when you read the Bible right they're always confronting jesus they're always adversarial they're always angry but did you notice jesus says i want you to know he's speaking to those teachers of the law the ones who are most opposed to him and he's saying i want you to know that the son of man has the authority on earth to forgive sins he goes i want you to know who i am what he's doing is offering them life with god everlasting even his enemies He's saying I want you to be whole in the deepest way possible. I want you to have life with God. And I'm telling you, that's why this it did amaze everyone. And it wasn't just the fact that the man was healed. What Jesus taught through that entire encounter was amazing. And they said we have never seen anything like this. so this is us what we think we need what we need most and what we have to do is try and separate those things out and i'm proposing to you that the way to do this is to come to jesus i'm proposing to you that jesus teaches us in this text that he is the one who can look this this is a... i have no hope of figuring out what's the most important versus what's currently important versus what's partially important versus what's just getting me frustrated, stressed, and anxious today. I need help parsing this out. And a text like this reminds us that when we come to Jesus, He separates these things out for us. And in fact, helps us actually let go of the things we think we need. And encourages us to focus on that which we need most, which is Himself. He's inviting us to come to Him. And so this morning, I just want to ask you, what are you bringing to Jesus this morning? As you approach Jesus, what is the weight on your heart? What are the, the circumstances you find yourself in? What, what is the pressure in life that is about to break you? What is the most pressing need that you're facing? It is entirely appropriate to come to Jesus and say, help! That's what we do, and it's what He invites us to do. But the posture with which we ask for help, I propose to You is this. Lord, this is what I think I need. Help me to let go. Show me that I actually need to find my identity, to find my worth, to find my value, to find my strength to face whatever challenges come my way. I need to find that in You. Jesus, I need You. And together, man, you and I, we can face anything. And He may heal. And when He does, we rejoice. And He may not. When He doesn't, we persevere. We come together as God's people, reminded that the most important thing is life with God, to be enjoyed now and forever. We come to Jesus saying, Jesus, fix this. And Jesus says, What you just need is me. That's hard, but it's true. And as you leave this place this morning, it is an encouragement that as you put your hope and your identity and your life in Jesus' hands, that you will receive everything you need for whatever it is you're facing because you've got Him. It's not that you don't have needs. This morning, Jesus says, what you need most is life with God. And it's on free offer to anyone who would receive it. Will you pray with me? Jesus, I was afraid to preach this. Because I never want to look at someone who is suffering and say, oh, you need Jesus. I don't want trite church answers to be the standard fare that we teach a community church. And yet we see in Your Word the priority You put on being reconciled to God. And so first and foremost, God, I pray that that You would meet us where we are in our pain in our fear in our uncertainty in our infirmity in our disease in our in our seeming hopelessness thank you for being a god who doesn't ask us to clean ourselves up before we come to you but we're we're allowed to just come to you with all of this baggage and say lord help and as we do that god we thank you that you are gentle You are kind and You are good. So Lord, we pray over these kinds of situations that You will bring healing and wholeness in Your name. But we also ask that You would shift our perspective to realize that there are bigger issues at at stake here. There are eternal issues at stake here. And what we need is to draw near to You and to find our strength in you, and to find our hope in you, and to find our identity in you, and to even find our enjoyment, our satisfaction, our sense of worth, our sense of belonging. Satisfy us in you, in the deepest places of who we are. Meet our needs with your very presence. And give us strength to persevere until that day when you make all things new. We love you. We need you. In your precious name. Amen.